and welcome to Women Positively Aging, the podcast for women in midlife and older who want to live well for longer. I'm your host, Barbara Bray, and today we're going to be talking about belly fat. For belly fat, middle-aged spread, apple shape, central adiposity, call it what you will, as we age, it seems to creep upon us. Over 43% of menopausal women have obesity, and in today's show, I'll discuss it with nutritionist, researcher, and inventor of the shape chart, Dr. Margaret Ashwell OBE. We'll talk about why having fat around your middle has different consequences to having it elsewhere. Margaret has spent several years researching weight gain and fat, and she will tell us about apple and pear shapes, and which is a better predictor of health risk. We also have a range of questions from social media followers to put to her. Welcome, Margaret, and thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Barbara. I'm delighted to be here. It's always great to have a chat with you, Margaret, but today's serious stuff. Can you tell us about what is belly fat and the implications of having it in excess? Okay, well, I think I should take you back to before you were born, Barbara, because I got interested in this in the (laughs) 1970s. Um, And I've been trying to think this morning of why I got interested. And it probably was a personal reason, uh, because I was a classic pear-shaped woman. And I went to do the Witch Slimming Guide in 1970-71. And even in that, uh, we had a feature on body shape rather than body weight. So... I must have been really interested in it in 1970-71. Then I uh, moved on to become a bit more serious researcher, and I found out about a guy called Jean Vargue, Frenchman living in Marseille, and he had uh, published all about fat distribution um, in 1946 and 1952. And there was a book in French, uh, which I struggled through and thought it was jolly good I scraped my French O-level, um, and he, um, he distinguished male and female type fat distribution, and he called them android and gynoid. So mm-hmm. android has another meaning apart from not an iPhone. Um, <laughs> anyway, so android, of course, is a male, male type and gynoid meaning female type. And he um, said even back in the 1950s, that it was the android type, the male type of distribution that led to, I think most of his work was on diabetes, all right? So he distinguished that. So I have to pay homage to Jean Vargue. But the way he measured whether you were android or gynoid, it was very complicated. Um, it was something like 27 skinfold measurements or something. It wow. really was very complicated. So gradually, between the 70s and the 80s, there was more interest in fat distribution. And there was um, a team in Sweden, Per Bjorntort's team, who did a lot of work on it. And again, the story started to build that uh, a male-type fat distribution was more serious than female-type fat distribution. And uh, I also then started to say in 1990s, I think, Uh, that this is so well documented scientifically that we need um, some sort of chart uh, based on some index of uh, fat distribution. Because I think I was aware, um, I actually saw the very first BMI chart on the back of an envelope (laughs) that John Garrow produced. Because before that, 
we had uh, tables of weights and heights for men and women according to life insurance. Oh, I see. And um, it was in, I guess it was in the 1970s, that I saw the first uh, BMI chart on the back of an envelope that John Garrett produced. And I knew how the BMI chart was a good communication tool about total obesity. So I think that's what made me say, uh, let's see, we need, uh, I definitely put that in a publication. I gave a nutsock abstract to year 1994 oh, yeah, saying Margaret, we need I'll a shape to chart. But in because there'll be people listening to this who have no idea what nutsock means. So for our oh, listeners, right. Sorry. nutsock is our... Nutrition society. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a, a 10 minute uh, abstract where uh, particularly youngsters stand there and quiver like mad because it's the first thing they've ever done. Uh, I was a bit older than that, but I did say that in 1994. Um, but at that time, uh, the only thing around, apart from all these complicated skin folds, uh, was waist to hip ratio. That mm -hmm. I don't quite know why that became, became popular, but it was. Um, but uh, that was the only thing around to measure shape with in those days. Um, anyway, so in uh, the mid-90s, I got the opportunity to analyze some data and try and find out which shape index was the best and simplest. And I do remember this well because um, we got some funding, believe it or not, from Sainsbury's. This is when I was at the BNF. We got some funding to employ somebody called Sonia Lejeune, who was a great statistician and nutritionist. And she uh, analyzed data from the Health Survey for England. And I remember that she sent me this data. This was before email. Um, she sent me this data and I got it on a Saturday morning and my daughter was playing uh, hockey um, at the local uh, hockey club. And so I took her there and I sat in the cafe. She was outside in the pouring rain and freezing cold <laughs> running around. And I opened this pack of um, stuff that uh, Sonia sent me. And I sat there and realized that uh, waist to height ratio has come out as the best predictor of oh. uh, heart problems in That's the British data. So mm -hmm. that was where, so I actually um, scribbled on a beer mat. I mean, I wasn't having beer at the time. I was having a cup of coffee. <laughs> you said it was a cup um, <laughs> So the first, the first shape chart was done on a beer mat. Um, I love it. So that was 1995. And I felt confident enough with the data that had come in, starting mm. to come in around the world, especially with a lovely guy in Japan. And um, so I actually produced the first shape chart in uh, uh, 1996. But I am aware that I haven't told you much yet about um, the importance of why we need shape. So perhaps we'd better go backwards a bit and then we'll yes, come please. on a bit more. <laughs> Okay, so what the serious scientists were doing at the time was they were looking at the difference between subcutaneous fat and um, uh, internal fat or visceral fat. Visceral fat is the fat that's buried deep in your body and wraps itself around the heart and the liver and the kidneys. Um, and realization was dawning that it was this uh, visceral fat that men had a lot more of, that's, that's giving them the android shape uh -huh. or the um, pear shape, apples and pears. Um, and 
the problem with the visceral fat, uh, when clever people started looking at more uh, molecular data, was that the visceral fat produces more inflammatory factors than subcutaneous fat. Mm-hmm. And you can measure these, but you can also measure the inflammatory factors in the uh, in a straightforward blood test, such as uh, C-reactive protein, etc. And it was found that people with more visceral fat produce more of these, and these are known to be risk factors for uh, diabetes, as Jean Varg said, uh, heart disease, stroke, and some sort of cancers. So mm-hmm. there was a tremendous body of evidence growing all the time that visceral fat was the the baddie, as it were. Yes. And some people even said that subcutaneous fat might be protective. Um, and there was also then a big body of evidence to show that your fat distribution is genetically inherited, mm-hmm. um, but on the whole, men will tend to have a, an apple-shaped fat distribution, in other words, more visceral fat, yeah. and women will tend to have more of a pear shape. Okay. Um, talking about apples and pears reminded <laughs> me that I did submit a paper to the BMJ because I was by then in Cambridge and I had powered up with Adrian Dixon, head of radiology, and we did a paper um, where he measured visceral fat and he took their waist circumference and waist to height ratio as well um, and uh, showed, as he, he actually rang me up, I always remember this because he was very proud, this is 1980s, of having a CT scanner in the 1980s. And oh. the words he used when he rang me up were, well, you'll be pleased to know that your two and sixpenny Woolworths tape measure, he said. <laughs> um, Woolworths, by the way, old thing yeah. that we all know about from the old days. But you're, you'll be pleased to know that your two and sixpenny Woolworths tape measure is just as good as my 100,000 CT scanner. No so way. I do remember that. <laughs> and then then we, um, we sent the paper into BMJ and we actually put apples and pears in the title. Oh, and, um, but they they accepted the paper, but they asked us to knock apples and pears out of the title because it had some had other connotations. And I, to this day, apart from Cockney rhyming slang, mm. meaning stairs, apples yeah. and pears going up, the apples and pears going upstairs, I don't know of any sort of dirty or sexual connotation for apples and pears. So it's news to we weren't me, about to use news to me. No, nope, there you are. Maybe somebody will rig it and tell you. So we, we, we weren't actually allowed to use apples and pears in the title mm. of that paper. Uh, but that was uh, 1985. Uh, but I say it wasn't, wasn't really until the 1990s when I started to say we actually need a chart for this and that waist-to-height ratio... Um, I wanted to get that across. So that was why I produced mm-hmm. the chart in 1996, I think it was. Mm. A and long can I just time go ago. back to this uh, Woolworths tape measure? Because um, yeah. we now have the string test, which, again, another one of your inventions. Can you tell us a bit more about how that's applied <laughs> and how that all came about and how you got to put a piece of string around Chris Bavin? <laughs> the string, of course, is even cheaper than the Woolworths tape measure, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, so I wrote uh, a lot of papers, mainly with Siggy Gibson, who 
is the clever analyst of NGNS and HSE. These are these are UK survey data. Uh, we wrote more and more papers uh, showing that waste to height ratio um, was a good predictor of risk. We also uh, confirmed in 96, I put the first level of risk at waist to height ratio 0.5. Now that means that your waist is less than half your height. So I promulgated this message, keep your waist to less than half your height. Um, and it, uh, a lot of people around the world came up with confirmatory research, which was very, very satisfying. Um, but uh, I have to say it was, it was the whole business of the string test. Um, it must have been about 2010 or something that I was in a group of uh, people who had just played golf, all right, and uh, some friends I played with every week. And it was one of those who actually said to me, uh, if you are suggesting keep your waist to less than half your height, you don't even need a tape measure. Uh, all you need is a piece of string. Uh, so actually, it wasn't even me who thought of that. It was one of my friends who, who yes, fair, you know, intelligent lady. She used to be a pharmacist. But, you know, Hanging it was somebody else crowd. who said it to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so that was how I then... Um, I haven't produced a chart. I mean, I more or less um, did the chart out of business because not that I ever earned anything out of it. I used to give it away. Um, but uh, now I sort of um, rather shot myself in the foot, really, um, because I realised uh, <laughs> that if you're only looking at the um, 0.5, I should say the chart has first level of risk at 0.5, mm -hmm which and then the second level of risk is 0.6 and mm. on the chart I have an okay range between 0.4 and 0.5 mm -hmm. I have a take care range between 0.5 and 0.6 and I have a take action range above 0.6 and a lot mm. of people said to me those were the first words that came into my mind but a lot of people said to me that that was much more sensitive language than used on the BMI chart which of course is you know you are overweight you are obese you are oh, morbidly see. obese even. Yes. And again, I hadn't even thought about that. But I, I, mm -hmm. I, the chart as it is today has got the same lines on it as it had in 96, mm -hmm. and it's got the same words on it. Um, so, so that was more by luck than judgment that I was using, um, if you like, people-sensitive people words, yes. um, even in those days, rather than stigmatizing words. So well, it like was that. talking yeah. about what should happen, take care and take action yes. rather than, I mean, it was probably because I couldn't actually think of a word, you know, overshape or, you know, oh, badly over shape or something. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's not really a word. It's common sense, uh, Which is equivalent of, yeah. So, <laughs> what um, I do like about it, when you going back to what we're saying about a body mass index, you know, it's, it's it's very useful across whoever's using it. So obviously there's, you know, you can't use it for certain types of people. Once you get really, really old, then it's less effective. But I think what the important thing is for me is whether you're South Asian, whether you're African, it's applicable. But with BMI, what we realized pretty yeah. quickly was that's not applicable to a whole range of people, but the string test actually is. Mm. Yeah, that was, the, as the studies across the world started to pour in, 
and I accumulated these and obviously I spoke at conferences and things, um, I realized that virtually everybody was coming out, which whichever populations they were studying, that everybody was actually coming out with the fact that 0.5, or keep your waist to less than half your height, um, was a good boundary value, as we call it, for first risk. Um, so that was great that people in China, people in Iran, people in India, um, as well as the Americans and the European countries, South Americans also particularly uh, came out with a lot of research, and everybody was homing in on the fact that keep your waist to less than half your height was a good message. And, um, and then, of course, the studies on children started coming in. And I realized that because people said to me about the shape chart, well, can it be used on children as well? And to begin with, I said, mm, I think so, but we haven't really got the studies. But now we do have the studies to say that the lines on the shape chart are actually, are, and the values used for adults are exactly the same uh, for children. I mean, probably you should say children over two or something like that, um, but children rather than babies. And so we're in this sort of happy situation now where that message can actually be used for all people of all ethnicities and all ages. I wanted to talk about age in particular because we know that um, obviously when you have visceral fat, belly fat, you know, that, that apple shape, it's um, making it a lot harder to stay fit and healthy and you're at higher risk of a whole range of diseases. But where's the tipping point? So we know that weight after a certain age it's not the same thing for all people. Can you tell us a bit more about what happens as we age? Yeah, so I think even possibly Jean Varg even said this. Um, if I went mm. back to the rather dusty book in my garage, I might be able to confirm it. But that as women uh, go through the menopause, they tend to then adopt the male type pattern of um, central fat distribution. One of the things I really don't know and um, is whether they actually get more visceral fat. I think they probably do, um, as well as more subcutaneous fat around them. I think they must do because the studies of risk factors will show that uh, um, women after the menopause become um, more likely then to get heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, etc. So, um, after the menopause, and we're now talking so 50s, um, there is, it is a natural thing that you, even if you were um, a pair like I was in your younger years, you will um, become more apple-shaped, all right? So, um, unfortunately, I can tell you, you don't actually lose your pear shape, you just get <laughs> become a, a pear apple, and you get both of the darn things, um, oh, great. Can't wait. And, <laughs> but, but, um, so it is um, important to be careful still between, say, the years of, I don't know, the years of 50 and 70 or something. But the other thing is that we also know uh, that as you get really old like me, it doesn't actually matter a damn, which is lovely. Um, so um, that actually it's really good to have extra fatness when you get really old um, mm -hmm. because you actually need that. Um, and 
I don't think there's really been enough done on that. You can, you can do that work, Barbara. But um, it does seem from the information that is around that it really is um, quite protective, whether it's the protection of the subcutaneous fat you've got and, you know, this overrides because you've still got the visceral fat. I don't know. I really, that's a complete new area, and I'll leave it mm -hmm. to you and your colleagues to look into that. Um, but the take-home message is protective, that, yeah. Mm, yeah. And, yeah, that's, um, yeah, go, going back to the piece of string, yes, it was very nice to do the BBC programme, and we recorded it in Milton Keynes, and uh, Chris Bavin was a presenter, and I had to wrap my piece of string around him many, many times to do many, many takes, and I really didn't mind because he's really rather hunky, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was a, a very nice thing to do. Um, and seriously, about the piece of string, I um, I really must go to Thailand because the Thais, they, it's actually government policy in Thailand um, to measure to see if their people have a waist height more than 0.5. And the way they do this is lovely because they use a piece of string. It's more, it's actually more like the sort of tape you get around parcels, the sort of um, plastic tape. And they get the guys and gals to, they step on it, and then they measure their height, uh, and then they take the bit between from the, the foot up to the top of the head, and then they cut it in half, and then they see if it goes around the, the place to measure waste officially is halfway between your lower uh, rib and your hip bone but quite honestly a lot of people find it easier if they want to do repeat measurements to measure it at the umbilicus at the belly button and mm -hmm. actually that probably is just as good if you want to do repeat measurements because you know you're you're not in a national survey or anything it's probably best to do it there because then you've got a, a landmark oh, um, that's good Good and uh, anyway, so what they do in Thailand is they then get the children and the adults to put this piece of string around themselves. Mm -hmm. And they then say, you know, it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, making ends meet. Because if the ends meet, that means that your waist-height ratio is 0.5 or below. But if the, if the ends don't meet, they then put um, three or four or five fingers. What they do is they put the appropriate number of fingers uh, to say, um, what is the space? What is the gap between the ends meeting? Is it one finger? Is it two fingers, three or four or five or two hands or whatever? Um, and I love that because it means there's not a single measurement to be written down. There's mm -hmm. no numbers, no centimeters, no inches, no nothing. And uh, so they can say to the um, people, they can say, oh, you know, you, um, the ends don't meet by four fingers. Uh, why don't you sort of come back in something like a month's, month's time or something mm -hmm. and we'll see if we can get it down to three fingers. Um, and I just love that because it's so very simple. I'd like to come on to the next bit and really talk about, now we've got the information on how to identify it and understand what the oh, can impact I just is. Say one mm. thing before we get on to that. Okay, one thing before we get on to that. It was 1996 that I published the first paper on waist-height ratio. And I'm really pleased to say that in April this year, nice 
National Institute of Clinical Health and Excellence, have come up with their proposed new guidelines for obesity. Uh, they're still recommending BMI um, boundary values as before, as a definition of obesity, but for the first time ever, uh, they are putting in uh, proposed guidelines for waist height ratio, and guess what? They are putting them in at 0.5 and 0.6 for increased risk and uh, high risk. And so it is um, music to my ears, really. I only had to wait 26 years <laughs> before suggesting something uh, and uh, it being taken up by, which I hope it will be now, implemented uh, by government. And the great thing is I'm still alive, you know. It's sort of <laughs> um, so that has been a wonderful thing that's happened this year. Oh, congratulations on that, Margaret. And I'm so pleased <laughs> you're alive. Not just alive, but you're well. <laughs> so we can actually go and celebrate. So for our listeners who are really keen to find out, obviously they know that we shouldn't be having this apple shape. And it's unfortunate that we're always being told to lose weight, even though weight loss is to do with and the weight you have. is more to do with your environment rather than your physical choices. But anyway, we are where we are. What we'd like to know is how we manage it. So you're saying in, in Thailand, for example, people are told to, to come back when they've, you know, reduced by mm. one finger. But realistically, what we what can we do to reduce this, this visceral, this belly fat that we're getting after menopause or even before, if you're unlucky? Okay, so you have to be aware, first of all, that... Um, the good news is that if you lose weight by any method, we're talking diet and exercise, uh, that it seems to be the visceral fat that shifts before the subcutaneous fat. Uh -huh. So that's one very good piece of news. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I think that it's important that um, you, you make certain that you really should be losing weight. Um, because some people, I think, who have been very, very thin all their lives and then get a small amount of weight menopause actually probably don't need to go too mad on it. They should just accept that it's uh, a natural thing. Um, you know, I hate to see people who, in fact, the reason this is in my mind because I was talking to another friend after golf yesterday who, as really as soon as a rake, and she had a heart attack about five years ago, and she was told that you know she had to virtually eat nothing. Um, and uh, she said, "What stupid advice that was!" Because she more or less faded away, and then realised how crazy advice was. So I think you have to think of your personal circumstances. Um, there's no blanket message that if you have been an apple shape all your life, and some women are, even though I've said that that's a male distribution, and some people are genetically an apple shape, uh, then yes, it and you know that you are storing too much fat, then it's a good idea uh, to try to keep it at bay or try to get rid of it. Um, if you have been a pear shape all your life and you become an apple shape after menopause, then the good news is that if you do successfully um, manage to get rid of fat, it will be that visceral fat that goes. And if Absolutely. you have got to the stage when you're very old, then you should say, isn't it more important that I keep enjoying life and keep happy uh, rather than putting through myself through the misery? 
That's great news. Thank you so much for that take-home message. And I know that people have been asking things about craving sweet foods and hormonal, but again, it's all part of a, a passage of time, isn't it? And a reaction to the change of life circumstances that everybody's going through. So stick it out. We need to do what we can and uh, find a pattern of eating that works for us. And remember that our food environment is incredibly important. So before we finish, I'd just like to focus on some other things that we can use as markers. What else do you recommend that we keep a, a note of as we age? So other metabolic indicators that we can get measured or go to the doctor and request tests for? Well, you should you should routinely, I guess, have um, blood tests that will look at glycated haemoglobin, for instance, as a marker of diabetes. We'll look at your LDL cholesterol as a marker of heart disease and obviously measure your blood pressure as a marker of hypertension. Um, yeah, so uh, those are all important. Speaking of somebody who's passed all those tests and had horrible arthritis a month ago, um, remember it's not just all the metabolic things. You know, you do yes. uh, tend to get other things. In fact, strangely enough, it, when I was had really bad uh, osteoarthritis, I then remembered that people used to say to me in my lectures about apples and pears, well, you've told us all the bad things about apples. Uh, what uh, Can you tell us, what, what do the pears tend to get? And I then remembered that I had tend to, said, um, well, actually, the pears tend to get more joint problems. So, oh, no. <laughs> so it's only just recently Margaret, we're that I've remembered that. <laughs> I know. So, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm, I'm just making the apples feel better now that uh, as a pear... <laughs> I have suddenly gone into what I predicted my, for myself, but I now must look up the science about it. But the most important thing really is just to stay happy and stay lots of friends and family around you and make the most of being alive every day. <laughs> That's great advice, which we also heard in one of our other episodes. And what I think is nice that we will have an episode on physical activity. And I think for the pairs, I would like to leave some hope that they'll be talking about physical activity and how that can be protective and help you with your joint health. So it's not all lost, but Margaret's advice on not worrying about the, the belly fat so much is doing what you can, but making sure that you prioritise the, the social contact and connection. And we will have an episode on social isolation and loneliness because that, in fact, is a, a real risk factor for healthy ageing. So we want to make sure that we're not focusing too much effort and things that we can't control. There's obviously our food environment. A lot of it is outside of our control but um, we are aware of what we're getting into. And we've got some nice things we can request from the doctor and make sure that we, we track our health as well. So we've got some really good tips from you, Margaret. Any last words before we finish? Uh, no, it's been, uh, it's been very nice to, for my own satisfaction to think back to the early days and how I got into this. So it's, uh, it's very nice now that I sort of feel I've had a happy ending to the research uh, story that I've been involved in for all these years. <laughs> What shall I do now, Barbara? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I can find some work for you, Margaret. <laughs> I'm certain you can, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today, and I would encourage all our listeners to follow us and um, to click on subscribe at the end of the show, and you will get notification of when the next episodes will be for this podcast series and in the meantime i wish you margaret and all of our listeners health and happiness and stay well and take care thank you